From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. everybody to another edition of Goal Own Goal. Joining me for once with my feet firmly planted on the ground is the oft-travelled and rarely missed Roger Mitchell. Rarely missed. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. Not bad. I'm a little bit jet-lagged. I got back last night. But yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, I've got more appreciation for what you do so often flying around the <laughs> world. Jesus. Well, it's your turn. It's your turn this time to fill us in on, on your travels. Well, no, I was in I was in Sydney for about ten days with uh, one of my clients, and that's the first time I'd been to Australia. And um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, went to Canberra for uh, a day or two, and then seven days in Sydney. And um, I just I just loved it. I loved everything about it. Grant, I know this won't surprise you at all. What a country! Yeah, it's it's fantastic, especially the time of year you went. It's uh, like. Autumn's perfect time to go to Sydney. I'm not sure about Canberra, but uh, hopefully you caught up with our friend Chris down there. I didn't manage to see him when I was down there this last time. Well, but, um, well, funny you should mention that. He picked me up at the airport in Canberra, and he picked me up. Wait, you flew? You flew to Canberra from Sydney? Yeah, it's like a two-hour drive. What's wrong with you, man? It was all organised for me. Uh, and, oh, okay, and uh, high roller. I, yeah, I, 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 I listen. I don't know anything about the geography. I just like staggered from one one airline seat to another. Uh, so uh, <laughs> you know, I, I got to Canberra and, and uh, I'd said to, to Aunt Arena, you know, like, I want to see Chris, and uh, they organised it. And then so Chris called me and said, "I'll come and pick you up at the airport." And I, I wasn't expecting it, you know, like I was jet lagged and everything. I was, didn't even think, well, you know, after what happened to Chris, how's that going to happen? But I came out and he told me where to come to walk right and, and look for a blue car. And, you know, as I did that, he got out the car or, or better, you know, put his legs out the car and stood up, stood up. And, you know. Oh, phenomenal. Uh, no, I, there was, um, I would be rather ashamed if somebody was videoing that moment. Grant, both of us just broke down. It was, um oh. it, it was because, like, it was really important, you know, that he's because, like, I'm not giving anybody the idea that he's going to get back to normal, but there's certain things he's managed to do, and you know, pulling himself up and and holding on to something by himself, he can do, and it was important for him that oh, he, he 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 greeted me in his feet. It was um, it was a bit of a powerful moment, I have to admit. Yeah, I'm not surprised, mate. That's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. Ah, mate, what a champion he is. Yeah, and his attitude, you know, let's not forget he's got cancer as well. His attitude, I, I just like, it makes you feel extremely small. And that doesn't happen to me a lot, but, you know, extremely inadequate. And, um, you know, so he took me around Canberra. We had a lovely coffee. How he gets around with a wheelchair <laughs> at one point. You don't know how to deal with these things for the best, you know. So at one point, we were going up the way. There was a ramp, but we were going up the way. I said, do you want a push, mate? He said, do you want a punch in the face? (laughs) 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 
it's just like it's just like larger than life and so never I'm still feeling, taking him over you, Rog. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You looked great, great shape. Uh, laughing, joking, when we got into talking about smart sports, where let's not forget he's making a lot of progress there. Just an incredible human being. Just incredible. Yeah, here, yeah, here. Yeah. I mean, that, that was my experience when I saw him last year. You know, he was just, just remarkable. Remarkable human being and uh, more power to him. That, that's fantastic news. Well, mate, the world of sport has continued in your absence, I have to say. There's, uh, as always, there's plenty of stuff to talk about. And, and I want to bring up my good for the beginning of the show because uh, even though it's my good, you're going to do a lot of the heavy lifting on, the, oh. on this one. Oh, no. Um, in terms of the aftermath. Yeah, afraid so. But, but you're going to love it. This is the joyous, in inverted commas, celebrations in Naples after Napoli won the championship for the first time since the days of your boy, Diego Armando Maradona. Yeah. Um, look, extraordinary thing for them to do, uh, an extraordinary team, fantastic football. And, um, you know, for the neutral to see Italian football get this kind of attention again, it was, it was fabulous. But, but you've described many times in this show Napoli and, and all its glory and all, all its glorious chaos. And um, it seems as though the, the celebrations were, were the perfect cover for somebody to shoot dead the son of a mafia boss. Yes, <laughs> yes. All the, in I saw all the, all the, all, all the chaos. So a 26-year-old son of, and I should say, an alleged Mafia boss was shot dead and more than 100 people injured during these celebrations of the title. So, Roger, take us inside Naples post-winning the title. Yes, uh, I, I didn't think you would have picked that up. I thought you were just going to generally talk about all the videos, about all the fireworks and everything like that. And um, Extraordinary. It, no, it's extraordinary. It, listen, every, every year around New Year, the government puts out all these things about fireworks and be careful. And, and they're, they're basically talking about Naples. You know, they're, they're really directing that message towards Naples because every year somebody gets their hand blown off or, you know, you can see all these, but it's just like, so that's really normal. And I read that too, that uh, two people died and many, many injured. I thought that was a low number, to be honest. Um, right. I, I thought... I thought I thought that was I thought that was you know a low number, and then I heard the story, and you just got it. The, the imagination of the Neapolitans is unbelievable. This will give us perfect cover to take out the Gomorra boss of the rivals. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! Because <laughs> nobody's going to call you on it. <laughs> Nobody. Right. Right, exactly. How do you prove anything in that chaos? It wasn't me. It was the other hundred guns that were firing. <laughs> no, it is it is an amazing place, and 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 of course because they were going to win it, we knew for ages they were going to win it. It probably took a little bit of the edge off it, and that's why the deaths were so few. Because if that had been a last game, you know, win, I think would have been into easily the tens, ten, twenty deaths. Because that's these 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 are the numbers that they get up there at New Year's. You know, there's they get over exuberant, and and, and rightly so. My good friend, um, Toby Jones, you know, the author of uh, so many yep. books about, you know, he did an article for The Guardian about what was happening. It was just a beautiful article. And he was down there with his son, which I thought was a bit of a risk. But um, the, the time that they went down was the time that they were at home and they got the draw at the last minute and they didn't win the title. But he, he said that, that the city, everything is just 
it's important down there, you know, it's, as you say, since, since Diego and you know, <laughs> Mafia, the Mafia hits, you just, you just got to love it. You got to love Naples. Well, there, were, there were a couple of great quotes. I had the, the US consulate <laughs> issued a security alert saying, and I quote, spontaneous celebrations <laughs> could last multiple days. <laughs> and they warned of heavy traffic or road closures, significant use of fireworks and alcohol consumption throughout the city. So that, that was an official security <laughs> from the US Embassy. But you, the, the prefect, the mayor of, uh, of Naples, Gaetano Manfredi, his name is, uh, when he was interviewed on radio uh, the day after the celebrations, he, he, he said, Rog, this death, talking about the, uh, the, the, uh, the son of the mafia boss, is related to dynamics that have nothing to do with the celebrations. <laughs> it was probably a settling of scores that took advantage of the party. <laughs> exactly. Just absolutely. It's so simple. Yeah. It's so just, simple. Just factual. Oh, okay, fine. Fine, okay. Oh, fine, all right. That's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But you know that that Napoli team have been sensational. They're just so much fun to watch. Yeah, they've run out of steam a little bit uh, in the last month, which obviously didn't work for the the Champions League because, frankly, they're a significantly better team than AC Milan, and yeah. um, they just they just ran out of a little bit of energy. But yeah, Spalletti is, a, is an excellent coach. Your mate Jim Palotta, who had Spalletti at Roma, Roma, yeah, and, and remember uh, how that ended with Totti and. You know, Spalletti and Totti fell out. So Jim Palotta, rather cheekily, I thought, put out a post of a photo with him and Spalletti saying, I always knew you were a great coach. I thought that was a little bit, mm, you know. A bit cheeky. A bit. Just, just not super classy, but Spalletti is a great coach. You know, in Russia, uh, they've had a lot of foreign coaches, uh, and but the one that is remembered most fondly, I think, is Spalletti. He's one of these coaches, you know, and De Serbi's a little bit like this at Brighton now that come from what I call the kind of like the, the trenches of Italian football and just really, really good, work your way up, and they're just excellent. By the way, I mean, like, I don't think people are talking enough about Brighton and, and not, just this, not just this year, Grant. Tony Bloom and what he's done and the infrastructure he's put in and how he's competing at a fraction of the budget... That's a lesson for everybody there. And I'm not sure that lesson has been picked up by everybody, but it's it's just phenomenal. And, and today, you know, they pretty much ended the championship with beating Arsenal. And um, anyway, you know, uh, yeah, uh, good stuff. Good stuff all round. Yeah, they've, they've built a first-class organisation and a superb team, you know, considering what they've done this year, you know, and losing Potter and losing um, Kukurea. Uh, beginning of the season, I mean, they didn't miss a beat, you know, and that's the that's what having a top class organisation can do for you, Roger. That's right, that's right. Well, let me come on to what I saw. I didn't see an awful lot the last ten days, but what I did see uh, a goal that I'm very willing to to talk about. Uh, you know, I did that article on Sunis as a as a pundit, you know, um, yeah, yeah. But this is about Thierry Henry as a pundit. You know, I saw him in the studio for I think it was the semi final, the Milan derby. Inter versus AC Milan. And, you know, I saw these clips on Twitter and then I looked for them a little bit more fully. There's two things I want to talk about this, if you bear with me. Um, the first one was the interview when they had Paolo Maldini. Uh, I don't know whether you saw any of this, Grant. I didn't see it, no. Right, so Maldini's been interviewed by Peter Schmeichel and I think it's BT Sport. And then they pass it back to the studio. And in the studio is Thierry Henry. And Thierry Henry is a very classy guy. 
you know, speaks well, Renaissance man, traveled the world uh, and everything like that. And, and, you know, he starts off a little bit like schoolboyish and saying, you know, Paolo, I've never had a chance to tell you this, but, and then he says what all of us would say, you know, uh, every every time I thought I had to play you, I was scared. 1998, uh, then that was a World Cup game. Everything. And it was just super classy and, and, and talked about the man, Paolo Maldini, and, and that is all true. You know, I think Maldini probably is the, the, the greatest example of Italian football that, you know, if you even go back to the, the, the old, old days, I don't think anybody represents Italian football better than Maldini. So uh, Henri was really nice in that. And, I, and it brought back to mind something that you may have seen last night which was the AC Milan football players having to stand on the naughty step in front of the, the Curva Sud. Did you see that in front of the... No, no, I didn't see this. Oh, man. Well, it got a lot of coverage on social media. They lost 2-0 at home to Spezia, which is a small team. And, you know, obviously they lost badly the semi-final I've just mentioned to Inter. Um, yeah. And, you know, they were summoned, summoned, to go and stand in two rows with the manager, with Pioli, to be lectured by the capo ultra, the head of the ultras. Now, <laughs> you with you with me so far? That's the image, so you can see this. I'm with you. Right, so you've got all these, you know, big names, world class players, important people standing there where where some thug, because these people are thugs. I don't want to say too much. I don't want to name names because I live in Italy and these people have got a history, referring back to what we're talking about with Naples. They are dangerous, dangerous people. And they uh, summoned the, the team and this guy lectured them about what they had to do and how they were letting down the team. And this phenomenon is, I don't think, well understood certainly by British audiences. You know, they've now taken the Italian word tifo for, you know, the kind of like really, really nice fan, you know, whether they put out flags or whatever, something like that. You know, when you see the decorations at the start of it and they say, isn't that lovely? But there's a very dark side to those people that are doing that, the ultras. They still, in many ways, Grant, they still control Italian football. This, this isn't understood by the people that are investing in Italian football or even the banks lending them money, uh, all the American new owners. They will now because after a, a, a short period of time, you are told who runs things in Italian football and it's not your chief exec and it's not even your director of football. It's the ultra. And, and you know, I, I remember many examples of this. Uh, there was one particularly about 10 years ago where Genoa, and now owned by Americans, our friends at 777. They're some of the most aggressive ultras in all of Italian football. Their team was getting beat 4-0 by Siena, and they basically stopped the game. They stopped the game, and they negotiated their price for the game being allowed to continue. Can you believe this, Grant? And, and, their, <laughs> and their price was that every single one of the Genoa players had to take off their strip because they were unworthy to be wearing it, 4-0 down at home, uh, take it off, fold them neatly, and the captain had to deliver them like, kind of, you know, like uh, all reverent style to the head, Capo Ultra, the head of the Ultras, who was standing atop the tunnel at this point. 
who was saying, give me and, 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 and offer your uh, ashen, you know, cloth and, uh, or, you know, penance in front of us. That, you can see this on, on YouTube. It's all there. So, you know, this week, that's what Milan had to do, which, you know, I want to bring it back to Paolo Maldini one moment because Paolo Maldini suffered this as well. Now, if there's one person who you think at the end of a career would get the applause, it would be Paolo Maldini. When he retired, yeah. I think about 2004, 6, 8, I can't remember, um, he did his lap of honour. And these same people, the Corva Sud, that's the hardcore ultras there of AC Milan, they gave him a hard time. They put out these banners that said, only one captain, Franco Baresi, uh, and, and other things about, you know, how they didn't appreciate him because over the years, Maldini had been very vocal about these people. Now, rightly so, because these aren't nice people. These are people that are involved in all kinds of crimes, all kinds, you know, from pirate shirts to uh, dealing with away tickets at a margin, from, you know, intimidating referee, everything, everything like that. And and so Paolo Maldini, uh, when he was going around, he 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 had this uh, this experience, and um, last night we saw all these players doing that. Listen, I'm not sure I'd be up for that. You know, if I'm told to, to come and like you know bow my head in penance to these people, and I'm on two hundred grand a week, I think I'm telling them where to go and shove it. Grant, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But that's the reality here. I'll just finish the last bit on Thierry Henry, which was um, quite interesting. He mentioned about Kevin De Bruyne. He said he's got the best brain in football, which I think I think actually is the case. And that links to uh, something I saw this week as well about AZ Alkmaar, whose young teams under 17, I think, they won the UEFA Champions League, the, young, the youth league it's called. Now, he said Alkmaar shouldn't be doing that. They beat Real, they beat Barca, they beat everybody. It's because they have started selecting their young players based on brain testing around cognitive ability. At 12, they put some kind of headgear on them and they assess their entire brain and they decide who has got the ability to develop a brain of cognitive skills that will be needed for the modern fast game of football. So, you know, I just thought that was really interesting. That's where football's going, the use of tech, the use of this kind of data science. And, you know, the ones that we've always said, you know, Grant, when we watch football, you know, Kenny Douglas wasn't the fastest, but he had the best brain, all this kind of stuff. Science is now proving what we fans always knew, the ones that could play and the ones that couldn't. Well, that's amazing. I hadn't heard any of that stuff. I missed. I missed that story completely. That's that's absolutely extraordinary. Ha, have a look for it. Have a look. Ha, have yeah, a look. no, I absolutely will. Because you, the way I you see will. them standing there uh, in front of these thugs, t lecturing them is, you know, you just juxtapose it with uh, all these people offering billions for, you know, funds and investing, and oh, I'm going to take football clubs as an asset. I'm going to manage them better. And you know how I always say they they don't know what they're talking about when they're talking about Italian clubs. This was a great example. You're not in charge of this club. Even in a, the best circumstances, you're going to have to receive the head of these ultras in your office and come to some kind of deal. I just know because I've spoken to too many people that tell me how it goes. And you're sitting in front of a guy who's been in jail often for very, very serious crimes. 
all this is in the open. There's names and surnames. I'm not going to mention any of them for the reasons I said, but this is what you're trying to manage when you buy yeah. an Italian football club. Gee whiz. Well, there's, there's obviously stories there for another day, Rog, so maybe, maybe off-air over a beer. Off-air. Oh, definitely off-air because... Um, <laughs> Well, listen, I'm going to stay on European football for uh, something which is an own goal, maybe disguised as a goal or maybe the other way around. I can't quite figure this out, but this happened actually a couple of weeks ago. And this was uh, your buddy Alexander Sheffrin's salary cap plan, which I I know you saw. You know, they proposed a salary cap. This is UEFA. And, you know, we've spoken long and hard about this particular topic on this podcast many, many times and put it forward as one of the only ways that football really has, you know, a a strong chance of survival unless they can get these costs under control. And it was fascinating to watch the Professional Football Association chief came out and said that players are going to be absolutely fuming at this attempt to to cap their salaries and cap the amount of money they can earn. You know, but at the same time, as we've said, that, you know, without doing this, it's tough to see how football survives. So I, I know you've seen the story. I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated in your, in your views on this because obviously you know Seferin and I'm curious as to think how you play out. Because when I read this story, I went, oh, I, I need to get Roger's take on this. Well, you know, on this one, uh, Seferin's correct. And, and as you are correct, Grant, um, as we said in the previous podcast, you should be running a football club or any club, even rugby, at, at, at a wage to turnover ratio of 50, 60%, 70 maximum. And, you know, so Seferin's right on this. Every, every, you don't need a genius to work this out. And, and when that works out, that ultimately will be the salvation of sport because uh, if your revenues go down, as we suspect they might, if if the bubble in sports valuations and rights comes down, player wages are just your shock absorber. You just run it at that same percentage of turnover. So if turnover comes down, you drop the player's wages. That's what happened on the way up. <laughs> so yeah, obviously yeah. it's going to happen on the way down. Uh, and then uh, you, you get the players' union, the PFA in England, the leader of that coming out with just this utter nonsense. If this was a, a union that had any respect, like, you know, the chap that Giles had on our podcast last week, the one that, that's the union of the NFL, then you, you can have a debate with people like that because these people understand everything. But the PFA for a million reasons, has been a laughing stock in football for 30 years. Most people won't understand why. They are a kind of like a fake union because, let's be honest, if you're a big player, the last thing you need are the services of the PFA. You've got an agent who's going to get you a wonderful contract and protect your interests in every moment in time. So... They say they represent everybody, but they don't. They represent the long tail of players. But even there, they don't represent them because, you know, anybody that follows the concussion and dementia thing uh, with older players, uh, Astle, Chris Sutton's dad, the, the union has failed them miserably. The famous CEO of the union, Gordon Taylor. Ah, yes, your mate. Well, I never really knew him. I just knew what his salary was. And, you know, famously, I may be wrong on this, I don't think so, but you go to the reception area of the PFA and there's a Lowry painting, you know, above reception. Uh, That happens to organisations that, in my experience, 
probably are earning too much or spending whatever they earn in the wrong areas. Certainly for a union, that shouldn't be the case. Then you think about how does they make their money? Well, everybody has to pay as they do their dues. But maybe this is where Gordon Taylor did earn his money. He negotiated an amazing dowry, or, or I call it a bribe, and, uh, to get a payoff from the, the EPL, the English Premiership. When the English Premiership was getting set up, it had to agree to pay various organisations a lot of money to keep them politically quiet. One was the Football Foundation and the other one, I, I think, was the PFA. This is a long time ago. My memory maybe isn't as good as it was, but the PFA has been a rich organisation for the reasons I've just said. Hasn't really looked after the members that needed a bit looking after and has claimed itself to represent everybody where I know for a fact that most senior players wouldn't even know its phone number. So for them to come out and say, oh, well, salary caps are a bad idea. It's just it's just so much in character. You know, it's a little bit like a day late and a dollar shy. It's just like, um, it's not an organisation that I think has done what it should have done. And it is, I mean, I think when I say things that it should have done, all these academy players that don't make it, which is most of them, and then they're lost and you hear these awful stories. This is the kind of thing that the PFA should be doing. And it's never done any of that. But hey, the, the, here comes the moment for a soundbite and their chief executive is talking the most banal nonsense. It's just pathetic, man. Just everything that I can't, I can't abide about the old structures and the old people that inhabit sport. What do you think the chances are of this going through, Rog? Salary caps. We've seen the evidence, you know, UEFA tried that. Uh, Man City kind of like beat them up when they tried to enforce it. I would put a question back to you. What do we think has changed in the meantime? Has the influence of extremely powerful nation states with unlimited legal budgets diminished or increased since the last time? No, you're right. Look, you're absolutely right. But I just wonder whether football will reach that crisis point where it's the only solution. And if so, does that is it the salary cap that finally splits into the Super League and the and the rest of the things? I, I don't know. I think that's where it goes. I, I, I think mean, that's probably what happens. I guess at this point. Well, let, 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 let me segue into another thing that I was going to mention here, which is exactly what you said. You know, sports attempts to what I call hold the line against disruption, polarisation, you know, arbitrary, whatever you want to call it. You know, like we saw this week just other examples of this and I hear various conversations that let me understand what's going on a little bit. You know, what do we have this week? We had people talking about British athletics and what a shamble it is. We had our old mate uh, Manoj Badali uh, talk about EPL and the future of test cricket and how that needed to change radically. I hear that there's going to be new formats in rugby. I definitely heard there's going to be new formats in football that maybe take place in the summer because the first attempt to change things more radically failed. And of course, rugby, you know, Grant, rugby, there's this article in The Guardian from, you know, this guy, I don't know who this guy is, but, you know, it's a player from Saracens. I don't know rugby a lot, but I can, I can see the winds blowing Alec Good of Saracens, he's a big player, I think, talking about how players are worried about a sport, especially in England and UK, that I don't know why people aren't more worried about, about what's happening in rugby. They seem to be falling over like nine pins, the clubs, you know, and, and he's basically talking about 
how bad governance has got them into this position and they need, you know, new people and new thinking. The status quo won't work. What I see in all of this, Grant, is, and they can say this is about the live and PGA everywhere, is that the incumbent organisers, rights holders, governing bodies, they are not seeing the data. They're underestimating the forces of change and they're shuffling the chairs on the Titanic. And in the meantime, everybody else is getting on with that change. As you suggested, you know, it might split up football because salary caps, or it might go another way. You know, you may see in the summer uh, a kind of tournament with big clubs that looks a little bit like a cup competition of the Super League. Say it's something like that. Then you say, well, oh, these people should be resting the calendar. What happens when there's the Euros and Copa America and the World Cup? How's that going to happen? And the calendars are, we've seen that in rugby, we've seen it in cricket and everything like that. Mm-hmm. These forces aren't going to stop, Grant. They're not going to stop. You know, we're going to see things in rugby that I think people will be very surprised about. New ways of thinking, new ways to think about the, the you know, the unions compared to the, the club game, the professional game. And I just think a lot of people have come to the conclusion, mate, it's impossible to deal with the incumbent governing bodies whether that's British Athletics, whether it's UEFA, FIFA. So we'll just start again. You know, we'll do a PTO, we'll do a CLGP, we'll start a new sport completely called pickleball. By the way, that is going through the roof in terms of interest. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so that's the thing I just wanted to link it to. It frustrates me sometimes. I just don't think they see the wolf at the door. I think they're in this whole world of, oh, we can just evolve gently at our pace. And (laughs) I don't think so. From everything I see and hear, I don't think so. I think we'll get a few surprises this summer. Yeah, I I, I get the feeling you're not wrong, Rog. I get the feeling you're not wrong. I'm not particularly happy about it, although some of it definitely needs to change. There's no doubt about that. But um, I don't know. I mean, I think rugby, sadly, is just not big enough for people to care and for it, and for it to get the headlines that, that football does. It's just that simple, you know. I think I think rugby quietly imploding doesn't make headlines. Football does. It's just that's just the way of it. That's an interesting point. Rugby in many ways is more powerful because the people that follow rugby are in bigger positions of power than the people that follow football. And I know a lot of them are very concerned about the game. You know, okay. but how many people read the? You know, if you if you if you're a newspaper editor and you give up space in the sports section to a big three page expose about the trouble rugby's in, how many people are going to read it? You're you're right, you're right. But but you know, as I say, I keep always saying I'm not a rugby person, and I don't think I speak with authority here. But I do think this sport has got a real chance because of the the values that it has, completely different from football. You know the way that they they hold themselves and the, everything like that, and I just think that its governance is truly shocking. Yeah. I, I can't say that strongly enough. Uh, and sadly, the investor that came in, CVC, has made a massive mistake. How many? How many? I mean, let's let's take it into the finance world. If you are an activist shareholder, Grant, what do you do? The what the clues in the word. You start shaking things up, saying, unless you change this, unless you change that, we're going to get nasty. That's what activist shareholders do. You don't come in and invest into 
a situation that is fundamentally badly structured and remain passive and, and, and hope that your money goes to a good cause. That seems to be what CVC has done, and I can't understand it. You know, you look at Silver Lake with the All Blacks in New Zealand, and I don't know a lot about it, but I tend to know that they have said this money that we're putting in needs to go into some specific areas around growing the game, around investing in in, in new marketing, you know, the classic know your fans better, all of this. But UK rugby, now linked with CVC, I just don't think you can have a better example of how not to do it. And it's sad because rugby has got a future as a sport. It has a certain set of values that we want to get behind. It's got a middle-class following that is important and influential. It's got major issues. One of them is about recruitment. We're getting to the stage, we said this three years ago in a podcast, we're getting to the stage that you can't consider yourself into rugby unless you're going to a public school in the UK. That's mainly where the recruitment is coming from. You cannot survive as a sport if you're really restricting your your pool of talent to kids whose parents can spend 30 grand a year on school fees. It's just not got a future grant. Well, look, Rog, there is a there is a, another potential explanation. I, I always go for Occam's razor. I'm not saying this is the truth, but you tend to get this at periods like this where everybody's making money in sport and sport, with quotation marks around it, is where all the cool kids are playing. And so somebody comes along and buys rugby expecting that, hey, we're going to get some time here where the news headlines about us piling into rugby is going to buy us some time and it'll it'll inject a whole load of impetus into the sport and new people come in and just the very headlines will not only buy us time but give us a bit of a kick up the pants and it hasn't happened. And so if you didn't have a plan, a very detailed plan, about how to do something about this from day one, you suddenly find yourself chasing shadows and, and it gets very difficult very quickly. And I think that's a good description of CVC. Look, you know, I, I know there's quite a lot of people that are really actively trying to do good things in rugby and their plans are radical because they have to be radical. They have to be radical. And when these plans come out, and they will come out pretty soon, I'm just imagining already the shock and horror from what Will Carling called the old farts, you know? And this is the bit I can't square. It's clear that the thing has gone down the tubes with the status quo, but you still want to give me the tradition and, you know, purity of the sport when somebody radical is trying to find a future. Because you're right, Grant, it's not big enough. Not enough people care about rugby. And if they're not careful in 10 years, it won't exist. I'm just putting a flag down here now. When people in the next four or five months come up with plans that people have to take a sharp intake of breath, I want them to ask themselves, as we saw in The Guardian this week with this guy, Alex Good, is the status quo working? And if you don't have an answer to that that is convincing, you need to let the radical people that are putting their own cash where their mouth is, you need to let them have a go at it. Yeah, no, I think you're right, Roger. I think you're right. Well, listen, I'm going to move us um, 
Back to football. I don't want this to be all one speed, but um, is there sure any other saw, sport, Grant? Really, to be I'm not sure if you. Should, well, at this point of the season, where it's the point at the end of the season, there's yeah, just so many yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah. Did you uh, did you see the National League playoff final yesterday? Chesterfield and Notts County. I, I didn't. I, I would have been travelling then. Sorry. Right. So yeah, th- this is famously Notts County are the team that pushed Wrexham. Uh, all the way to yes. uh, the, the closing weeks of the season before winning. I mean, the two of them finished you know, 25 points ahead of the team in third place. Wrexham get the automatic promotion spot, all the hype, all the hoopla, and we saw that for weeks going on, and, and, and what an amazing story it was. And then we get to the playoffs. So Notts County, I think they were finished, I think it was 25 points clear of the team in third place. If ever there should be a mercy rule and you should go up if you're that far ahead, but there isn't, Roger, of course, because this is English football. And so there's Jeopardy. So they have to play uh, Boreham Wood in the semi-final to get to the, the finals yep, at Wembley. Yep, yep. Notts County score in the final minute of extra time to win that 3-2 after being 2-0 down at half-time. Their, their opponents in the final, Chesterfield, beat Bromley, which is the, the team near, nearest where I grew up when I was a kid. They won 3-2 in extra time to get to the final. Uh, and so then we get to the final. And, you know, it's it's heartwarming and, and funny at the same time. They play this thing at Wembley Stadium. The entire upper level is empty, obviously, because the, these clubs just aren't big enough to fill it. But the bottom level of Wembley Stadium was packed to the rafters. Another vociferous crowd. Obviously, Notts County, massive favourites. They go 1-0 behind, of course, to Chesterfield. And they score close to the end of the game to take it to extra time. They go 2-1 down in extra time and they level up with about 10 minutes left of extra time. So it goes to penalties. Notts County bring on their substitute goalkeeper a minute before the end of time. Who's this, I don't know, he's like 6-6, this guy, huge guy, who had played with, he was an understudy to Tim Cruel. He comes in, makes two spectacular penalty saves and Notts County win this thing on penalties 4-3. I mean, it was it's an absolute... Fantastic. It's just... It's it's a, just a flood of incredible sporting stories have come out of that league this year, and we get to see both teams, Notts County and Wrexham, in the in the football league next year. And I just wonder, Roger. I mean, you know, you were all over this at first, but I, I couldn't figure out the angle when Reynolds and McElhenney bought Wrexham. I thought it was just a rich man's play thing. You nailed it straight away. You said this is going to be a reality show and it's going to be big and you were absolutely right. And I, like everybody else, has fallen in love with the show, with Reynolds, with McElhenney, with Wrexham, the whole thing. What do you think happens now with these two teams that are obviously very, very good football teams? You don't dominate a league like that without being way too good for that league, which implies you're good enough for the football league. What do you think happens uh, next year when these two are, are in the, quote, small big leagues? Well, listen, I would answer it the way I would anybody in that circumstance. There are people that run football clubs well and people that try and take shortcuts. I would answer it like that and pointing to two previous guests we've had on this show, Plymouth and Anne Luton. You remember those two interviews we had with those two guys? Yeah, Simon Hallett and Gary Sweet. Fantastic conversations, both. Right. Now, they talked the, the way that they were going to do it, sustainable bit by bit. And they, they've done that. We've talked about Brighton earlier and uh, Brentford. If you put in the foundations and you're not bothered about getting up immediately and you keep your discipline and your processes and you manage to shut out the pressure you get from the terraces, I'll tell you the truth, Grant. Since 
90% of other clubs aren't doing that, you will do well. And that's the reality. You know, so if Notts County, who, by the way, are the oldest club in Britain, I think, which means in the world. Yep. Yes, they uh, are. Who, by the way, is the reason Juventus plays in black and white stripes. They deserve to be coming up there and they've got a brand that can aspire to do what Luton and Plymouth have done. Uh, if instead Ryan Reynolds and Michael Henney want to, like, say, got to keep the momentum going or the story dies, got to keep it in the news, we need to buy somebody a little bit beyond our budget because that's going to be a story, he'll just crash and burn. And, you know, it'll be nice TV for a while and he won't go back because he'll be abused every time he goes into the town. We talked about that the last time. Uh, so it's, the answer to your question, which is a great question, is it's up to them. The message I want to give is if that you run a football club well, you will do extremely well because nine out of ten of your competitors aren't doing it well. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, what else have you got for me? Um, well, on that same theme, uh, I don't know whether you noticed this week that PSG are in the market for a minority investor. Did you see that? I did not see that. All I saw about PSG this week was um, was Messi's suspension and the South Saudi thing. Yes. So um, that's well, it's all linked to all of this. So so PSG, Messi and Neymar are, let's say, at the end of their journey with this project. I think that would be the professional way to describe what has been a shit show from A to Z, the, the PSG story. That kind of like, we're going to buy one more superstar, one more superstar to push us over the line and win the Champions League this year. Crashed and burned at the last 16, I think. So they, coming back to wage percentages, are well over 100%, never mind maxing out at 70. And that's probably with a lot of, you know, ballooned revenues from Qatar adjacent companies that they're getting. Let's leave that all aside. I don't think anybody who knows football will disagree with what I'm saying here. But the news came out that various PE companies, including the famous Arctos, are in the market for a minority stake in PSG. And you want to call a top, Grant? You want to call a top? Why in anybody's universe would you take a minority stake where you have, by definition, no control in a club that is run by a nation state that has no idea or objective of financial return? Why would you possibly do that, Grant? Yeah, look, it makes it makes no sense at all, Rog. You're right, you're right. And, but these, and, these, and are PE, these are PE firms that are taking LP money, they've taken investor money, they're looking for a return, they, they talk about being very, very serious. What kind of like investor criteria and committee approvals do you have that ticks a box that says, I will be a minority investor with this club, having seen their last 10 years and having seen who owns them and say, yeah, that's going to pass and I'm ticking off and signing that check? That's a talk, well, Grant. Uh, allow me to play the role of cynic this time, Rog. Proximity, right? You, you, you come in on this as a minority shareholder in PSG and don't worry, wait till the deals we show you. Wait oh, till you no, see the really? deals. Oh, really? I never thought of that. In. Really? Well, what do you think? Well, what do you think, right? Because you're right, it doesn't make any sense being a minority. If you're a minority shareholder 
in a company where the majority shareholder does not need to make, a, or even in some cases want to make a profit out of this, it's a stupid thing to do. Yep. But think of the deal flow. Think of the other things that we'll bring you in on. Don't you worry. You know, there's going to be plenty of other deals and we'll make sure you get a look at all the good ones. And I never the same thought playbook that. that you see in Silicon Valley, Rog. Exactly the same playbook you see in Silicon Valley, right? We'll all pass these deals around and each round will go higher and we'll all invest in each other's higher rounds. And then when we get to the top, we'll flog it to the public, we'll all make out and uh, we'll all walk yeah. away rich. It's easy. So I'm sure that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. You know, it's a big headline deal. So you're a player by the very fact that you're in there with the Qataris. You know, the fact that they've greenlit you as one of their partners in this is a big tick. Hey, look, you know, we get the calls from the big investors and we're at the top table and they're going to be showing a whole lot of deals, I'm sure. Well, yeah, you know what? Now that you say that, I'm asking why I never saw it. Just some, <laughs> just sometimes, you know, You're like... Yeah, I think that's what it is. But no, seriously, Grant, you... And I, and I want to segue that a little bit into what was one of the, the own goals, but I think it's super important, this, and it does bring us back to, you know, that slogan that I'm now adopting, money, demographics, and geopolitics. Did you see two days ago that CAF, which is the African Federation of Football, has done a big deal with Saudi Arabia? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, you saw that? For quotes... Uh, I saw the headlines, yeah. Right, okay, because you didn't need to read anymore, and, and you're right. Uh, the, the, the details are, we are going to uh, together invest in growth opportunities for African and Saudi football. Another alternative heading would be, we are throwing a shitload of money of you because you're going to vote for Saudi 2030 World, World Cup. Yeah. I mean, who the fuck are they kidding? I mean, honestly, The Vision Grant, 230 of MBS is all leading up to this, Roger. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. I'm not sure if bookies are offering odds on where the 2030 World Cup's going to be. But um, if Saudi isn't short price favourite, I'd be amazed. No, they've got all their votes now. But, I mean, l l let's widen it out a little bit because does that not smell an awful lot like what China's doing with Africa? What's it called? Belt and Road and everything like that? You kind of like... Yeah. Is, is, is it not exactly the same? Yeah, look, it used to be. The Americans did it with debt, right? The Americans would loan countries money to build infrastructure. You know, I, I interviewed John Perkins, a guy who wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and he talks exactly about how all this worked, right? You go write a report, you explain how a new hydroelectric dam in a country would boost GDP, and don't worry, lads, we've got the banks, we can finance it for you, we can lend you the money to do it. So you lend them the money, and then they're on the hook, they owe you that money. And there's a little briefcase here for this president, a briefcase there for that president with some money in it, or places at Harvard for their kids, or whatever it may be. And then you've got these countries on the hook because they owe the money. But the Chinese have done it a very different way. They haven't said, we'll lend you the money. So we'll come in and we'll build you a port. We'll build you infrastructure. But our guys will build it and you'll hire our guys and we'll run it. And that's exactly what's happening right the way through Africa. And the Saudis have seen that. Yeah. And uh, the, Chinese, the Chinese, of course, don't get paid in money. They get paid in commodities. Correct. And the Saudis have seen this. The Saudis have seen that playbook and realised that that's much more in their interest to, to get infrastructure footholds in, in countries. And so that's what's happened. But it's a battle going on for these countries, Rog, between the West and, and the kind of BRICS nations. And it's just getting started. It's, it's, it's going to get a lot, a lot chippier before this is done, I promise you. Yeah, no, I'm glad you added that in. But, but can I ask you again, I've been out of the loop for a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the debt ceiling. Is this a thing or is it just the usual politicking? Uh, look, it's in the middle somewhere. It's the usual politicking. And once again, I'd be absolutely staggered if 
they screw this up and they don't raise the debt ceiling. But for various reasons that are way too complex and involved for this conversation, there is a little bit of jeopardy this time around. There are you know, temporary things that they put in place before that expire now that mean there is a, a much higher possibility that this might go wrong and America would technically be in default. But as I said, if it happens, then it's on nobody's heads but the politicians who are just trying to score points and it would be an absolute catastrophe. And you've seen Janet Yellen out warning to anyone that will listen to her, anyone that's got a microphone has had Janet Yellen screaming into it how this would be a catastrophe if they allowed it to happen. I'm pretty sure they won't. I'm pretty sure it'll go to the 59th minute of the 24th hour. But I'd be staggered if they screwed this up, Roger, because it really would be just a massive, massive... I mean, talk about own goals. And how does that play into the, the thinking about... Because I'm, I'm really, I'm asking, because I've missed it. How does that play the thinking about, you know, pivot and interest rates up, interest rates down, cost of capital? Where, where's the latest thinking on that now? Well, the, look, the debt ceiling doesn't really affect that other than it would put borrowing costs up if they allow the debt ceiling to expire for sure because a lot fewer people would be willing to take the risk on US government debt if they were likely to default. But it doesn't change the pivot. We're in that kind of muddy spell where they're starting to suggest there may be a pivot. You know, the, the Aussie Central Bank surprised and hiked recently. The Bank of England had some figures come out and they're struggling to pause now. So the data is very, very murky and... You know, I think they realise that if they pivot too soon, there's a risk inflation gets out of control. They would like to pause, I suspect. If they can, if the data cooperates, they'll pause, but they're not going to cut without some kind of crisis, I don't think. They'll be loath to give back any of this stuff unless there's a genuine crisis. So, you know, we, nothing's really changed. We're in the choppy part where the data should start falling, um, but does it fall fast enough and do people's expectations fall along with them? Because right now... What you'll see in the newspapers every day are the wage increases, you know, which yeah. are sticky. And those don't go down when interest rates go down. We've just seen the, the nurses union in the UK asking for double-digit pay rises um, in the middle of a whole series of strikes. So, so we're at that point of the whole yeah. dance. And the wage increases are, are much more problematic because they're very, very sticky. And so if you, if you are being forced to raise wages by double digits, then guess what's going to happen to the price of your finished goods? So this is by no means over. And as much as the Fed and other central banks would love to be able to pause, Rog, there's no guarantee they'll be able to do that for too long. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, that's me up to date. That's me up to date. You got anything else for me? Uh, the only other thing I have is one I saw a couple of weeks ago, actually, which uh, I was outraged about, <laughs> as I'm sure you will be. And that is... Uh, the Snooker World Championship possibly leaving the Crucible. Now, not only is the Snooker World Championship leaving the Crucible unthinkable for anyone that grew up watching snooker during the heyday of the 1980s, uh, the Crucible Theatre being basically a glorified community theatre in a shopping centre in Sheffield. Yeah. Um, less than 1,000 seats, 800, 900 seats, I think. We've seen the Qataris trying to bid to take the World Snooker Championships to the Middle East, Rog. Now, yeah. we had a phenomenal tournament this year. This guy, uh, Breslau, the, the Belgian guy that won the World Championship, was such a breath of fresh air, both in his style of play and his, and his kind of media comms. He was just great fun to watch and great fun to listen to. But the idea that the Qataris are looking to buy snooker, <laughs> I'm not sure about that as a, as a thing to spend a fortune on. But I know our mate Barry Hearn, if there's a deal to be done, will do himself and Matchroom a hell of a deal. 
Yeah, I did see that. And I was just always, you know, smirking when I say, you know, they're not playing at this. The Middle East are not playing with uh, what they're trying to do with sport. We've talked a lot about that. And as people know, I'm very like sanguine about all of that. You know, there's certain things are inevitable. Money, demographics and geopolitics. The thing I would love them to take hold of, Grant, if they really do want to go for it. I said this before, and, and we had this the, the joke about it, women's football. Have you seen the attendances now? You know, like... Uh, Unbelievable. Uh, like, uh, you, you've got to be honest here, right? You know, I, I've always said that is the biggest opportunity. But at the same time, I do tend towards the classic misogyny of the my generation that, that it's not our game type thing. So... As a businessman pro, I've always known that this was going to work and said so publicly. And I'd congratulate them for it. You know, the numbers are, are fantastic and, and I bear them no malice whatsoever. I think it's an amazing product market fit. It's just not our game, but it's an amazing product market fit. Uh, so when the Player of the Year award came out, and they get into all kinds of tangles now about, do you call it a, a man footballer, a footballer man? It's just nonsense. There was obviously Haaland for the male game and somebody from the female name who, today I don't remember. And then when she was announced, I didn't know her. And I'd laugh at that, you know, because they try really hard and this is what they're doing wrong. The future is theirs. They don't need to do this. They insist on putting them on the same stage, on the same pedestal. And it's wrong, you know, because honestly, you ask anybody of the traditional legacy football fans to pick out of a lineup three current footballers that were nominated there. They won't be able to do it. And this girl who, who won it, I don't know who she is. I don't know what she looks like. Black, white, I have no idea. And it doesn't matter. But, you know, that's what I thought was funny. They're knocking it out of the park. The future is theirs. And they still give everybody a hard time. I, I remember Graham Souness started with this, we'll end with it. It, it. It's a man's game and he got all kinds of hell. They don't need to do this. They don't need to do this. So that's that's my little frustration of the, the week, I think. Yep. I understand that completely, my friend. Understand it completely because it's something you've been talking about for a while. Well, mate, I'll tell you what, that it takes us almost perfectly to the hour mark. So I guess it's time to wrap things up and uh, and stick you back in bed if you're still Yeah, I'm late. going to You'll, bed, uh, yeah. You, you, yeah, you've got, you've got a few more days of this, I'm afraid, of purgatory of being up at stupid o'clock in the morning. I know it well. Um, no, don't make sure that. you've got a good book to read make sure you've got a good book to read anyway mate thanks for doing this I know you're tired I know it's late there in uh, in Como but um, fun as always our thanks of course to you out there for listening to us we thank you for that each and every week and this week is no exception please if you don't follow us already you can do that very easy you'll find us on Twitter at entertained R that's the word A-R-E you'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H and myself back on the lake RPM Como back on the lake all right, my friend, get some rest. I'll talk to you next time. Take care, Grant. Bye-bye.